and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White, IFG's Deputy Director and this week's Deputy Podcast Presenter. Well, it's the morning after the by-election the night before and Boris Johnson will have woken up with one hell of a hangover and there wasn't a party in sight. The Lib Dems have won the North Yorkshire by-election and overturned a massive Conservative majority in the seat that has only ever been Conservative. We'll take a look at what it all means. That result followed a huge Tory rebellion in the Commons against the Prime Minister's attempts to bring in tighter, but not that tight, Covid restrictions. So how serious is all this for the Prime Minister? What's going on in the Conservative Party? Is a leadership challenge really on the cards? And sadly, there is no getting away from Covid, quite literally judging by the number of cases out there. The Omicron variant is racing through the land, the government is ramping up the booster campaign, Plan B has kicked in and will Plan C follow? We all wish we didn't have to, but we're going to be talking COVID yet again. Joining me, not in person of course, are a pair of top IFG senior fellows, Catherine Haddon and Giles Wilkes. Hi both. Hello. Hello, Hannah. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Jack Blanchard, Politico's UK political editor. Hi, Jack. Hello, how are you doing? I'm all right. You used to write the the morning playbook email. How bad was that after a by-election? It was brilliant. Oh, no, it was great. Because if you're writing a morning email that comes out at seven o'clock in the morning, the very best thing is some big breaking news at 4am because you can be the person that tells Westminster all about it when they wake up. So I used to love it. Although I'm not sure in the three years I did it, we ever had a by-election quite like this one. No, we'll we'll, uh, have a chance to talk about it all in a minute. We'll begin in North Shropshire, where the Liberal Democrats secured a substantial win and inflicted a bruising defeat on the Tories. So how bad is this for Boris Johnson, Jack? That's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I mean, you know, we've seen by-election upsets before this year, of course, the Tories losing Chesham and Amersham with a a similarly disastrous swing to the Liberal Democrats, uh, another true blue Tory seat, but a very different sort of seat. You know, it was a sort of fair breeding ground for the the Lib Dems there, a Remainy sort of seat with lots of um, wealthier graduates living there. The North Shropshire is completely different. This was a Brexit supporting seat. There is no way that Boris Johnson should have lost this. but uh, and, and so it's going to cause very big questions about his leadership at a time when, of course, those big questions are already being asked by Tory MPs and out in the country. There's no there's no two ways about it. He's taken a right kicking last night. And what, what do you think was the deciding factor in making people vote as they did? Speaking to Tory MPs who were out on the doorstep, speaking to um, opinion pollsters who who do focus groups, I think the overriding factor is the absolute outrage in the country at the stories about Downing Street having parties during lockdown last year. This has cut through. Uh, to the general public, like nothing since the Barnard Castle scandal, um, whatever it was, May of last year. You know, there's nothing that people hate more than hypocrisy in governors, and especially when they're being asked to make sacrifices. So to have seen the uh, Boris Johnson's close aides laughing and joking about cheese and wine parties, to have seen the photograph of um, Tory aides and, and their mayoral candidate partying in CCHQ when we were all in lockdown, this stuff has really, really cut through, and people are very angry about it. And there are people saying they will not vote Conservative again because of it. The big question, of course, is whether this is a sustained loss of support for Boris Johnson or is this is something that's happening just right now because people are particularly angry with Christmas coming. Kath, do you think it's is it the sort of sleaze angle which, which Jack's talking about? Do you think that's something that will sort of sustain by the time of the next election? People will still be thinking about that by then? 
I, to be honest, that's hard to say. I mean, that partly depends, obviously, on what happens in the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, not least because we've got the Cabinet Secretary's inquiry into these parties and the question hanging over all of it of what the Prime Minister knew. Uh, the Guardian had a story about another party um, back in May last year where Boris Johnson was was present. So um, that's still going to hang over him. And, and obviously, there's a question of whether or not he reacts to this um, and set, you know, starts to do something different on uh, these scandals and on his sort of messaging uh, to the public. Because the line this week, and in fact, even, you know, today um, on, the, on the, the airwaves, is still that, you know, the public don't care about this stuff. And kind of doesn't really ring true given this result uh given you know as jack says what on the you know people are reporting back from the doorstep about uh, the public's reaction to it and jack presumably things could get worse we do we know yet when we're expecting the case the simon cases review the cabinet secretary's review of the, of the parties to report is that going to be pre-christmas we don't know. They're, they're being very cagey about it, understandably. But I, I, I do think things will get worse. There's plenty of rumours around Westminster about other parties um, and other developments in this story, which haven't yet been stood up enough for a newspaper to print them. But I really don't think that what we've heard is the end of the story. Mm. Um, and of course, there's other scandals floating around, potentially the, the whole issue about Boris Johnson's wallpaper in, in his flat. That that has very much not been put to bed yet. And I think there's a bigger thing as well. You know, what Boris Johnson really needs to do and what you heard Oliver Dowden, the, the Conservative Party chairman today, was desperately trying to get the conversation back onto, you know, what the government is doing in terms of rolling out vaccines and its other priorities. The problem is it just doesn't feel like Boris Johnson is capable of getting through another few months without some other sort of, you know, putting his foot in itself defeating scandal, blunder, sleaze, you know, it, it feels yeah. like it's one thing after another at moment. And the risk is you get into that sort of Gordon Brown death spiral where things just keep going wrong for you. And all yeah. the public sees is a, is, a, is a chaotic mess in Downing Street. There's a there's another angle to this, which the by-election is important about, because Jack did a, another great podcast this week, which was looking back at the 2019 election. And he had Rob Ford on there, who's obviously one of the authors of the, the important tome on the 2019 election, talking about how actually, if you look back at that election, it's a bit of a mistake to think this was down to Boris Johnson's electability, that actually a big part of it was simply the get Brexit done line. And that if you look at Johnson's uh, approval ratings through that, they don't compare favourably with others. And even Theresa May during the, the 2017 election was was doing better. And there's this, you know, been belief in the Conservative Party that at least with Johnson, he is, you know, an election winner. And that's the reason why you put up with this stuff. And if they start to think, well, hang on, that's not true, then that again opens up the question of is he the right person to lead them to the next election? And Kath, I mean, you, you're a resident historian at the RFG. That's always a precursor to asking me a very specific kind of tell us the entire <laughs> history of, no, go on, go on. This is not, not, not an impossible question. Yeah. Um, you've, you've talked about how people maybe have read the 2019 election wrong. What, what is the significance of, of a by-election um, loss like this for the, for the governing party? Is it really as significant as, as the Lib Dems would like us to, to think? 
Well, look, I mean, the, the Conservatives will keep saying, look, this is midterm blues, this always happens to governing parties. And yes, there is some truth to that. Um, but as Jack was saying earlier, you've got two in particular that are very notable. There was the Chesham and Amersham one, which will be worrying a lot of um, Conservatives, particularly those who've been around a lot longer, because that is the areas where, you know, the Lib Dems are the big challengers traditionally to the Conservatives. And if they can take a load more seats at the next election, then that really starts to whittle away uh, the majority, whereas you know Shropshire isn't no, you know one that we normally think of as as the Lib Dems. It's often Labour who comes second there. So again, like I say, that poses questions for um, the Conservatives on that front. I mean, the election I have or the by election I have seen people referencing this morning. So I'll be interested in both Jack and Giles's view on this. Is 1962 Orpington, which was supposed to be the big fight back uh, for the the, Lib- the then Liberals uh, after their sort of post-war hiatus. So people are starting to sort of wonder you know is this the Lib Dems coming back but they're very good local campaigners that's the key to them. Giles I mean in a former life you worked for the Liberal Democrats before you then went on to work for Theresa May obviously now as an IFGA you're completely neutral but what what do you think this result means for the Lib Dems? Totally um, I think the way to portray this clearly with them coming from third to first in this case overcoming a 63-10 deficit to win by quite a handsome margin this is what's most worrying for the Prime Minister. This is a anti-Tory vote. The voters were incredibly astute at working out where their anti-Tory vote was best spent. And although I'm sure the Liberal Democrat candidate was excellent and is a local person and had all sorts of those advantages, what's most worrying for the Tories is the echoes of the mid to early 90s, where Again, voters found a a taste and a skill at finding the best way of voting against the Tories, no matter where it was. And if that is repeated in a general election, um, even if you don't get these enormous swings, if you just have that tendency, then whatever result you were expecting for the Tories before might be 30 or 40 um, votes worse, Mm. seats worse, I should say. Uh, And Jack, of course, you know, this isn't an isolated bad event for, for. The, the Prime Minister, he had a thumping uh, rebellion against his measures he wanted to bring in this week in the House of Commons. How significant was that, in your view? At least as significant as, as this by-election result. Um, two massive blows for Boris Johnson's authority, one delivered by his own party and then one delivered uh, by the people of North Shropshire. Uh, so the public and MPs equally angry at the way things have gone over recent months. And of course, it is the Tory MPs in the end who will get the first chance to get rid of the Prime Minister whenever they feel like they might have a, a better leader. So they're the people he needs to keep happy first and foremost, if he even wants to have a go at the next general election. Um, All I would say to temper all this, though, is that don't forget, you know, politics can change pretty quick. It wasn't that long ago, earlier this year, we were talking about a dreadful Labour buyer election result and wondering if Keir Starmer was going to be able to hang on as Labour leader and Boris Johnson was supposed to be Prime Minister for the next decade. I remember those conversations very well all over the airways, all over the newspapers. And then here we are six months later saying precisely the opposite. So things can change very quickly. The the thing that Tory MPs want to see is, is, is Boris Johnson's ability to change. They want to see a professional operation in Downing Street that doesn't keep making these unforced errors, that doesn't keep upsetting the public with scandals and missteps. The question is, is he capable of it? Because what we've seen so far is they're just really lurching from what one mistake to the next and if he can't do that then that is what is going to continue to happen through the next year and then you are really starting to question if he's going to be leading them into the next general election. 
And uh, from what you're hearing, Jack, do you think there are the, the potential other Conservative leadership candidates are on manoeuvres? They're always on manoeuvres, aren't they? They're politicians. I mean, you've you've seen Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss very clearly trying to position themselves as the uh, the successor to Boris Johnson whenever that time comes. And I would expect it to be a straight fight between them, judging by their current popularity uh, amongst Tory party members. But look, I mean, that there is no prospect of this happening anytime soon. Boris Johnson will have every chance next year to turn this around. And I'm not saying for a minute that he won't do so. So, but this could be the beginning of a of a death spiral. It's it's really down to the prime minister whether he can uh, he can sharpen his act up. Right. Well, I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot about prime ministerial resets and uh, so on in the new year. But whatever happens there, it's a safe bet, I think, to say that the prime minister will still be dealing with COVID come 2022. Omicron cases are soaring, and we still don't know quite how serious it's all going to get. Plan B is in place, but Plan C might not be far away. Kath, once again, we've seen front pages about the Prime Minister being at war with government scientists. Is that accurate? Uh, uh, I'm not sure that it is in terms of what's going on internally. I mean, the fact that Johnson reacted as quickly as he did this week, there's a lot of discussion, obviously, about... Um, you know, the, all the stories about parties and how much he's trying to move the conversation on and lots of conspiracy theories and dead cats being thrown all over the place and so forth. But <laughs> it does seem to be that, um, you know, he has had some very serious warnings uh, from his advisors and is therefore taking some action, but possibly not as much as they would like. And so what we saw, particularly uh, in a press conference earlier this week, was Um, You know, Boris Johnson setting out, emphasising the booster campaign in particular as the way to get out of this crisis. Uh, Meanwhile, his chief medical officer, as he is quite right to do, it is his sort of position, you know, it's a statutory role. It's been around since 1850. Um, Chris Whitty saying that he thought that people should prioritise their social contacts and deprioritise going out um, when they didn't need to do so, which was taken to, to by many to be, don't go to the pub, don't go to Christmas parties, which is the line that the government have been resisting um, saying. And that has led to a bit of a backlash unfairly against the chief medical officer because he is doing his job um, and has led to these stories about a sort of clash between Uh, the science and so forth. But in the end, these decisions are made by the politicians. The scientists advise only, and and Chris Whitty would be the first person to to say that. But this difference between the messaging that's coming out from them uh, is certainly causing a lot of people to ask questions. And Catherine, you wrote a report this time last year, almost to the day, I think, which set out how government should use science advice in a crisis. Do you think the government's taken on the lessons that you identified in that report? Well, I mean, the big one that, uh, you know, we've all been concerned about throughout has been the mixed messaging. Um, We talked in that report last year about the danger of sort of going from optimism to, um, you know, the worst case scenarios and the confusion that that caused for the public. And again, we've seen that in recent months. 
our colleague Alex Thomas wrote a piece back when the sort of the, the potential reactions to future COVID crises were set out in which plan B was one of them. And he wrote a piece at the time saying, well, that's fine. But what about plan C? Because it could get worse. And that's where we have found ourselves at the moment. So they haven't again prepared the public. There's a lot of echoes of last Christmas when, you know, the government resisted, resisted bringing in more restrictions. Uh, people found that their Christmas plans were in confusion. And, and uh, you know, again, you're, a lot of people will be self-isolating uh, this Christmas as a result of it. In terms of the science advice itself, I mean, we've seen a bit of a downgrading of the role of SAGE. It's still there, but there's been quite a few departures from it, some quite noticeable departures, uh, but it's still there, still operating. And the government have improved some of the other ways in which they're getting supported on all of this, but have added in other problems, including sort of the relationship with JCVI, which, um, you know, again, was part of this in terms of its advice on uh, the JABS booster program, and particularly in how uh, children should be targeted on all of this that has possibly delayed getting vaccines boosters out. So, uh, there's still some problems to be dealt with and some of the major ones have, have not yet been dealt with. And Giles, do you think Chris Whitty, the, the Chief Medical Officer, just accepts that political pushback is part of the reality of his job? Yeah, I think he does. And I think um, in a sense, it's a part of all of these roles you have around the government where they have independent, strong advice, which they realise they need to insulate certain characters and positions from uh, political pressure, that inevitably there'll be people trying to overstep that and push at it and regard it as illegitimate. And I think he's been doing a very good stout job of resisting it. Um, as far as I can see, he realises his role is to lay out as best as he can in a situation of, remember, quite incredible uncertainty. Three weeks ago, nobody here knew how to pronounce Omicron. And now they're, they're having to evaluate wh- whether it's going to peak at two or three or 400,000 cases a day. So I think he realises his role is to explain to the public the implications of this. And particularly when we've had six months of what felt like a glide path back towards some kind of normality and living it with a certain degree. I mean, it's an abrupt change. So he has to be quite vocal. He has to be quite florid in his language to make people realise that this is a very different situation and they have to look to their own behaviour as part of the response. I don't think he's ever crossed the line because he hasn't turned around, pointed his finger at the camera and said, you must stay inside or otherwise you're risking your grandparents' um, health or something like that. He's just reminded people that when you're in this situation, you have choices and constraints and this is what they are. And if you do want to see someone, work out who it is that you really want to see and order your priorities. And I think that's just sensible advice for the public and as far as I can see, really not overstepping the line. No. And what we saw with Chris Whitty this week, we saw him at a press conference. We also saw him in front of a select committee and he Mm. seemed to be a little more um, open in his remarks in front of the select committee. Kath, do you think that's that's a a sort of different forum in which he can he can speak more? Yeah, I mean, this is quite part of the irony of some of the criticisms coming out of, you know, how dare unelected blah, 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 put out their views. I mean, he was asked there by MPs to come and give his expert advice. He has a statutory responsibility for public health. So these criticisms of him are quite extraordinary, really. Um, 
But yeah, of course he wanted, you know, there has been a a noticeable shift in his language. He has been perhaps stronger on this one, but that just shows the severity of it. And we have to remember, if you look back at um, inquiries into other sort of public health emergencies, um, or, you know, comparable, whether they're sort of animal health or other, and a lot of the time in crises, uh, the lesson is clearly that the public do better when they hear from experts and that the voices of experts are really important. Um, so he's doing exactly what he should be doing in this job. Jack, if Johnson did want to get Plan C, so tighter uh, COVID restrictions through the House of Commons, do you think he has the political capital to do that? Well, he's running out of it fast, isn't he? I mean, we saw the absolute struggle he had to get Plan B through um, Parliament with literally half his backbenchers uh, rebelling against him. You could expect to see that in spades if he came back with further restrictions. Although having said that, um, if he was to do that, I think... He would be doing it because the country would be in a pretty torrid state from a COVID point of view. And you might find that in itself started to change a few Tory MPs' minds. The problem, as we've seen throughout this crisis since the very start, is that to be effective with COVID measures, you kind of have to do them before the crisis actually hits. And that's mm. harder for the public and, and, and seems particularly harder for, for MPs to get their heads around. You know, they, they want to see the how bad it is before they're prepared to take these these radical measures, by which point, of course, it's generally too late. But that, that has been the pattern of it. And you can sort of understand the mentality. And so I guess that would play out as such, you know, if, if cases spike as badly as we're sort of fearing over the next two to three weeks and Johnson does have to come back with more restrictions it's possible that that's a bit of a wake-up call for some of these Tory MPs who've been voting against them. And it's worth remembering that I mean the vote was split along different lines um, the other day there were some who were just particularly objected to uh, the sort of Covid passes they did not see how they would help at that particular moment they had obviously ideological objections to them uh, so there was a lot more focus around that. Some of the other measures, um, you know, got better support. So um, it could be that, yeah, as Jack says, it, it will be partly down to when the cases show differently, but also it will be on def- different measures than just COVID passes. And then can I, if I can come in to uh, agree strongly with Jack there, one of the problems here with it being so fast moving is there's normally a sort of 10 to 15 day lag between the case numbers we see and the hospitalisation figures we see. And so by the time we know whether its virulence is so bad that it will overwhelm the NHS, on its two to three day doubling rate, it might be like four times worse. So the the, the, um, the Prime Minister is in a terrible position of needing to act in a way that anticipates what that ratio is going to look like. And then at the end of it, people will probably say it's spreading so fast that by the time you act, we've all going to have caught it anyway. So what was the point? And so I think he's in an incredibly difficult position there. And he'll mm. be he'll be stumbling around in the dark to a large degree. And Jack, there's there's been talk of potentially there needing to be an emergency recall of Parliament over Christmas. Do you, do you think that's potentially going to happen? If it does happen, do you think it will be back to the virtual Parliament? I mean, nothing would surprise me that what what is most amazing about this pandemic is how quickly things can move. I remember so clearly last spring watching the scenes playing out on telly in Italy. And then before you know it, this wave was just coming across us and the, the country just felt a different place every couple of days. And, and we're seeing that now, as, as, as someone said earlier, if you just think back to a week or two ago when we could barely pronounce this word. And now it's upon us and goodness knows how things will look come Christmas and come New Year. So, yes, I do, I do think it's possible that that would have to happen. And I do think the outcry from MPs if Boris Johnson tried to 
bring in more restrictions without recalling Parliament would be absolutely enormous. Um, virtual Parliament is something that, as we know, has been very resisted by the leader of the Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, you would guess he would continue to be very sceptical skeptical about it as a concept. But I guess if we're at a point where the virus is absolutely virulent everywhere, then they may really have no choice. Well, their problem is also because uh, it needs a motion to put it into practice, and they haven't done that before rising. So um, you'd first have to get enough of a quorum back to put the motion in place, I believe, Hannah, for um, hybrid proceedings to go ahead before they could then run it that way. So it would be rather chaotic. But there, I mean, there are still the steps that they can take, which is to follow Chris Whitty and actually for the government guidance to change on that. But we're already seeing signs from uh, Wales that they're likely to put in stricter measures after Christmas. So um, I, th- I think there is a good chance that we see something. It's whether or not it's next week or the week after. Yeah, I think you're you're right on the techni- technicalities there, Kath. Giles, people are being urged to to greater or lesser extent to, to avoid social contact, and the hospitality sector is really feeling the consequences of that. Lots of people are asking, where's Rishi Sunak in all this? What do you think he should be doing? Yes, he's in a really difficult position here because he's taken a really firm line against further support, partly because there's still a lot of support in the system, like business rate reductions and so forth, but also a growing sense that um, the problem with the economy was almost that it was too strong and some of the support might have been exacerbating the supply side issues, keeping people at home that didn't need to be home and so forth. So in other words, the really generous Rishi Sunak we got used to in the middle of 2020 has stepped off the, off the pitch a bit. And, um, and yet now business has got a right to complain because we're having a de facto lockdown in sectors of the economy without the support that we had before and also at a really really critical time of the year so what what should he be doing i mean he's done the right thing and scuttling back as fast as he can from california because that looks really terrible even though we should emphasize it was a business trip it's not a holiday um and he is meeting the representatives of these sectors and i think personally we should be Um, supporting them more. And I think as um, our colleague Tom Pope has written, in a more targeted way, so not spraying the money that we did in in mid-2020, but in a way that tries to keep these sectors afloat, because there's none of the normal complaints against bailout supply when it's something that just hits a sector and they can't really be expected to have prepared for. And this is that kind of a shock. Do you think the Treasury and Number 10 are aligned on on what needs to be done now? or, Or do you think there's some tension there? I bet there's a lot of tension. I haven't spoken directly to people on that specific subject, partly because it's so fast moving. But the Treasury are the ones who are most hawkish about things like giving people money that they don't know how to repay doesn't really help them at all. It keeps sort of zombie firms going and that sort of thing. That's not the sort of thing you worry about in Downing Street. It is in number 11, where you you worry about how the bills are going to be paid. But also, what we've really learned in the last year is that COVID has an effect not just on stopping people spending and the demand side of the economy. It's had a really terrible effect on the supply side and the the ability to get labour into the right sectors and so forth. And so the Treasury is naturally saying we need to think about other ways of supporting the economy that don't do it the same as last time because we've been left with these issues which include a 5.1 percent inflation rate which is a, a a terribly high figure so um the treasury will be saying we need to do things differently this time that's interesting well, i'm sure the institute for government will be thinking about lessons that the treasury should be learning from last year uh, in our work next year 
There was some good COVID news this week, um, in a sense, the, the, the government announcing the appointment of a chair, Baroness Hallett, to lead the COVID inquiry. Um, Kath, what do we know about her? Yeah, she was the coroner on the inquest of the 52 people who died in the 7-7 attack. So she has uh, quite a bit of previous experience of of doing reviews and so forth. It's going to be a judge-led inquiry. It will be under the Inquiries Act, uh, which means that it will have powers to compel evidence. Uh, So this will be a major inquiry. And in her statement, she's talked about the important need to meet with families, um, you know, people who've died, been affected by COVID. So there's clearly an emphasis there in terms of understanding how important they are to any future inquiry. Uh, There's still, though, a lot of work. And this is one of the reasons why we were pushing earlier in the year for it to get started sooner, because alongside, you know, setting up a chair, they have to then go and start setting up the whole apparatus that uh, gets an inquiry underway. Um, And it can take quite some months of that and look starting to look for papers and all that kind of stuff before you even start to have the hearings and so forth. Uh, And that is obviously some years away from when you then get a result from it. So I think there will be a certain amount of confidence in her as an inquiry chair and in the process that will now follow. But um, it's still a lot of questions and it's, you know, it's a, it could be a huge rambling inquiry in terms of what it looks like. Um, so it's, it's a long way to go yet. Jack, do you think there are a lot of people in Westminster and Whitehall who are worried about this inquiry? I'd certainly been in the back of people's minds really almost since this crisis started, you know, the scale of what's happened over the last two years. If you're working in a senior position in government, you know, it's not just your colleagues and the voters who'll be judging you. It is the history books that will be judging your performance. And so something like Chris Whitty issuing the warnings he did this week, you know, he will be aware that he's going to be remembered as the chief medical officer during this once in a century, we hope, disaster. And 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 he has a responsibility to do everything he can beyond just, you know, making himself popular at the moment and so yes people have been well aware of that they've been keeping paper trails uh, or (laughs) carefully not keeping paper trails depending on what's been going on of of their own actions with one eye on this inquiry but certainly from a political point of view as um as we've just heard, it's going to take ages. You know, this is not something that's going to be troubling Boris Johnson going into the next general election, uh, even though the findings of the inquiry are likely to be pretty grim for him because, you know, history tells us that these things take years and years and years to reach a conclusion. And I don't think there's any reason to think that this will be any different. And Giles, I mean, both Kath and Jack there talking about the dangers of this going on and on. How do you think the inquiry should should focus its, its inquiries? Well, I mean, gosh, what a great question, because we used to speculate on this in number 10 around Brexit. We thought, wow, this is really going badly. Somebody's going to want to look into this because it's damaging the country. That just shows you how naive um, policy people can be. In the case of this one, I think it will be quite clearly there's going to be a lot of focus on the early days in particular, because we all know the nature of something exponential if you act two or three weeks earlier, it can make an absolutely giant difference. And a significant amount of mortality came about there. And that's also where the lessons are most relevant for the next crisis, because the next crisis will be a new thing. And working at how a political system adjusts to a new thing is arguably where the most valuable lessons are to be found. There's going to be a lot of focus, in my view, on the points at which the politicians did seem to be directly at war with the scientists. I know we've been downplaying that in the case of the recent um, discussions around Omicron, but last September, it was really clear that Patrick Vallance and 
um, Chris Whitty were really alarmed about the growth of the alpha variant, was it, the Kent one? And yeah. um, and you could see it in the figures. And they were predicting 200 deaths a day, which seemed really bizarre. And they absolutely hit it. And you could say that we had unavoidable loss of life then because the politicians were very resistant to it. And we've seen that also with the Dominic Cummings revelation. So in terms of like tactical decision making, I expect that to be a, a large amount of the focus. But the, there's, you know, as an Institute for Government person would say, we're also going to be focusing on the processes and the institutions here, that why do we not have better sort of inbuilt um, reactions rather than improvised ones next time this sort of thing happens? Why did, it, why did we need the vaccine task force to come in and improvise a new supply chain around vaccine production? Why is that not the sort of thing that we have automatically? Uh, there might be some quite interesting work about whether the British state needs some sort of reconfiguration in order to be more um, quick to get on a war footing. And that, that's where I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a sort of a witch hunt. It can be an opportunity for the state to up its game. Yeah. And those are the best sorts of public inquiries, the ones where there's actually something that can come out of them that can change to prevent problems again in the future. Yeah. And that's it, I'm afraid, for another episode of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Jack Panchard. And thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live, for all the events and podcasts we've recorded over the last year, including a great review of the last 12 months of Brexit, entitled, sorry, Last Brexmas, I Gave You My Deal. <laughs> you can listen to all our podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And do leave us a review. And if you tell us we need a reset or a relaunch in the new year, then so be it. And don't forget, check out our website at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our work. We've got a few more podcasts coming out before the end of 2021. But until then, I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, a break from all the politics and a COVID-free new year. See you in 2022.